I'm Jake Oblowitz, the producer of Lowdown on Low Code. I hope you enjoy our first episode, and I'm here to hand things off to our hosts, Rob Koplowitz and Ryan Dugan. Hello, and thanks, everybody, for joining the maiden broadcast of Lowdown on Low Code. I'm Rob Koplowitz, and I'm here with Ryan Dugan. Ryan, say hello to the audience. Great to see you, everyone, today. Uh, excited to have you join us and excited to kick this thing off. I'm going to give a tiny little history of where this came to be, um, which is that um, I retired about a year ago. And what I found was uh, that I was often finding myself in conversations with people that I used to work with, Ryan being one of the primary ones, and having what we thought were pretty interesting conversations. Uh, and we said, you know what? Let's turn this into a podcast. Um, Ryan and I have a, a shared passion for a couple of areas. One would be low code. One would be digital process automation. We'll dig into a little bit of that and how we think that is, is basically becoming or has become the same thing. And the role of automation in making enterprises fundamentally more efficient um, and more effective. My background in this is, um, uh, well, it started with Lotus Notes. I busted out my 28-year-old Lotus t-shirt and from my days as a, as a business developer. Um, but it went on to include um, working with, um, with one of my Forrester colleagues on SharePoint research. This is where we came into contact with Ryan. And, um, and it went from there to my spending about six or seven years covering this area of digital process automation at Forrester Research, which, is, which was an important part of the low-code landscape. Ryan, where did you come to this? Oh, geez. You know, I studied a long time ago in a small country called Scotland, probably. But uh, I've been in the software industry now for over 25 odd years and uh, spent a lot of time around content. Content leads to process and automation. Uh, highlights of my career, eight years at Microsoft working on SharePoint during its ascension to, to glory. And then, uh, you know, shameless, shameless plug for my previous employer, Nintex. I spent eight years at Nintex helping build out their cloud platform with a, an incredible team and taking that company from being a small Australian startup to being a, a somewhat of a global phenomenon. Um, spent a few years since then jumping around. Uh, I'm at QuickBase. And uh, now freelance and investor, advisor, coach to startups. And uh, for some reason, I can't seem to get away from the space. I keep getting drawn back in. It's, it is a space that I think is, has been important for a long time. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, that, that's worth sharing with the audience is that Ryan and I spent a lot of time talking about this, this concept of low code. And while we truly believe it's proven itself as, as enterprise as enterprise grade for developing software and really critical for driving this long term of uh, this long tail of automation, we think organizations are still struggling with how to do it, how to get the programs up and running and, and how to get them um, really leveraged and how to bring the business into this fully. So that was the derivation of the podcast. Over the course of the coming few months, we will be talking to a number of folks. We're going to talk to uh, folks from Figma who are going to talk to us about um, about the role of design in this. We're going to have sessions on governance. We're going to have sessions on uh, security and application lifecycle management. 
Um, we're going to talk to any one of a number of industry luminaries. Um, uh, and, uh, and we've got some, some great people lined up um, and, and quite a few of the vendors um, who have expressed an interest in, in being a part of this uh, as well to get their perspective because we think that's relevant. So let's start with our first um, industry luminary, a longtime friend, um, and as importantly, a, a, a longtime colleague um, and, and someone who, whose research I think the world of, and, and I had the huge privilege of, of doing that, some of that research with him. So folks, please join me in um, welcoming former forester analyst, current expert skier, um, John Reimer. Thanks, Rob. Great to be John, here. John, I want to I start off with a quick question. John, you invented the term low-code. Tell us what you were doing and why you decided to place your focus in research on low-code. Okay. Well, first of all, I, in, I invented this term with another colleague, former Forrester analyst Clay Richardson. And Clay, at the time, had responsibility for covering uh, business process automation. Now it's digital, digital process management. Got together one time at a Forrester conference and had a conversation about how um, we were seeing different products and different approaches to development arise. And we discovered that there was a lot of commonality between what he was seeing and what I was seeing. So we decided to, because all, all the Forrester's great research, most of it is done through collaboration, we decided to work on this together. Long story short, we... We spent four months. We, we approached vendors who we thought who, whose products seemed to be this have this difference. And we, we said to them, give us customer names. We want to talk to people who are using your product to see if there's real difference here, if there's a really different way of approaching application development. So we spent four months on this. We talked to, we ended up talking to the north of 30. Um, Customers with various from various perspectives, various industries, etc., and um, we we found a, we kept finding a couple things. First, these customers were using pro, these pro, the products because they allowed them to develop and deliver software much much more quickly than they could if they coded. And secondly, the products were. Uh, built, they were designed, and they were also um, also the business model allowed these developers to experiment and and test ideas. And the real moment, the Trask moment for us, I think, came when we got on a call with a Mendix customer. So this was 2014, uh, the the first part of 2014. The, they were 300 year old London insurance company probably since acquired. And we were talking to the guy who had been the executive who had been named, who had been put in charge of innovation and given a staff of one. So the first thing was they didn't have a website. So they needed to build a website and a bunch of web applications to be competitive in, in the insurance industry. They were way, way behind. Mm -hmm. So this guy, this fellow and his employee were using Mendix to build, Mendix was very much focused on web applications at that point, and they were using that uh, the Mendix platform to build out um, 
web applications. And then it turned out they were also using Mendix big competitor OutSystems. So we were like, wait a minute, you mean you didn't pick one? He goes, I don't have to. These are cloud-based products. They're, they're really inexpensive to start. We just want a platform to really innovate, which means we don't know exactly what we're going to build. We kind of know what we need to do as a business. And we're going to experiment in the development process to figure out what's the, the best way to achieve our business goals. And by the way, that testing and learning continues after we deploy the first release. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was completely different. This is 2014. I, I came to this work from looking at cloud platforms for Java development. I mean, this was a totally different uh, environment. And so that, that uh, here, here you have an insurance company, mission critical in that it was, they were building applications that customers were going to touch, that they were going to, it was really going to uh, address the relationship with the customer and the prospect and prospects. Um, and they were just rolling real quickly. We thought, we realized this is really different. This is this is different in, in every dimension of software development. So, now, John, if you to pick up on a point there, this is going to be super interesting. I think for anyone anyone listening, that concept of we don't have to pick one, right? One of the things that comes up again and again, and in, in the world of software in general, right? Consolidation. We've got too many technology stacks, too many different tools doing too many different things. And your time as an analyst, how, how often have you seen that flip flop from? <laughs> We don't have to pick. We can use multiple. That's a good thing versus, no, we need to have a single platform for our low-code practice. What have you seen over the years in that regard? I think that um, the the fact that this insurance company was not standardizing uh, and was using multiple platforms what re really reflected where they were in their journey. First of all, there, were no, there was really no economic barrier because the, they were using free licenses. So who cares? And they were really just at the beginning of their of their journey in understanding how to put these products to use and how it really affected their process. Now, what I found was that when a that inevitably, when a company would really start to build a lot of applications on a, on a given platform, um, they would they would then seek to consolidate. And the primary reason they would do that is is labor. Is, is leverage of skills and development of skills uh, using a particular platform and the processes surrounding development on that platform. That's thing one. And then the second reason that they would seek that is because when you get to a real commitment to a platform, you're paying real money. And so at that point, you're looking for, um, uh, you're looking for volume purchasing uh, advantages with that platform. Uh, the way I, th I began to think about this was, any new aspect of development, you know, when, when Rob and I were working together on low-code research, data science was rising up. And you saw a lot of people experimenting with different data science platforms because it was really new for them. But then they eventually, they do tend to consolidate. That was my experience. So let's fast forward and say... Well, wait a minute. So, so Rob, do you want to know that where the term low-code came from? Yes. Good. Um, 
so Clay and I, Clay and I <laughs> do these interviews over, over four months and um, it comes time. Well, we got to write, we got to put pens, paper and figure out what we've learned. So we wrote a report and we knew that we had to identify what was, you know, a category or we were a little squirrely about whether this was really a category or not. It was so early. So we, we debated this and Clay's preference was for the, that we use the term no code. Mm -hmm. And I, I fought against that and, and, and actually persuaded him that low code was a better term for two reasons. First of all, we thought that this set of developments was in the industry was really important and that it was, it was not just going to be some little sidelight. This was actually going to define a major stream of, of development in, in corporate, you know, in the corporate world. So the, what we found was the term, we had found that the term no code was dismissed by a lot of development professionals. Whereas low code was more palatable because that term also recognized what we found to be true in our research. Usually there was code somewhere in the application. Most often it was to integrate with a backend system. A lot of backend systems did not have good API structures or anything like that. So you ended up writing an adapter to pull data typically, or maybe sometimes submit transactions uh, into that backend system. And so we went with low code. And actually one of the vendors came at me like a ton of bricks saying, we don't like that. We, we stuck to our guns and I think we were right. It really caught on. So I want to throw in I want to throw in an anecdote. So John, you and I were interviewing a really bright fellow who was at Nintex at the time on this topic, and we said we were talking about the difference between low code and no code. And a gentleman by the name of Ryan Dugan said, "If if you need it and you have to code it, I haven't done my job." That to me is a philosophical difference. Ryan, could you jump into that? Yeah. The, the, so the vendor, the vendor landscape at the time, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you're, you're placing this around sort of 2012 to 2014 era, rise of the cloud and lots of shifts happening in technology. Most of the vendors that had grown up around whatever we were calling it, it started, you know, I'd say QuickBase 1999, right? It's access database, but it's in the cloud before it was called the cloud as an application UI host. And and we're all trying to figure out what we call it because most of us have come from, well, it used to be my, my time was rapid application development, right? And so you went from less code to lower code to low code to, to this sort of holy grail of no code and trying to get as visual and drag and drop as possible. I, the, the two asterisks I, I would always put in, and I'll come back to the question, Rob, but first up, the, the great debate in the industry, and I have it with a lot of people, is whether or not you consider an Excel formula to be code, right? And if you consider an Excel formula to be code, then there's no such thing as no code. No such thing at all. Unless all you're doing is pure data visualization and spreadsheet type stuff. Maybe a little air table, maybe a little smart sheet. And even then, five, ten minutes into building an application, you're going to be writing some kind of function, some kind of script, <laughs> some kind of text extra extraction, regex, whatever, right? So if Excel functions are code, nothing's no code. If Excel functions are something a little different, then there are no code solutions out there. And then the next piece that comes up, John, is your point, which is 
okay, I have to make an API call. And whatever platform I'm using doesn't have some sort of native integration to the system I want to talk to, at which point you're making a web service call. And then there's no way to get around really doing that. You can minimize the code involved in that. And there's a number of vendors I think do that really well. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to write code. So, so to your question, Rob, you know, as the, the head of product at Nintex and with a team obsessed with this, what we're always trying to do is find every single place our customers use code, talking to our customers, looking at the solutions they're building and asking what is it they're doing. And that's, that's going up to the top of the roadmap every single time. How can we take that pain away? How can we simplify that process? Some of that came from integrating with just progressively more and more systems. Some of it came from making our concepts of parsing XML or JSON or making web service calls more visual in nature, more parameterized in nature. Um, and we were just trying to get that to be as few cases as possible so that it was truly on the edge of the fringe. And then if you had to break out of jail, and I credit uh, Charles Alana, Stephen Siciliano, and Power Platform team for this one, you want to take this approach of the, the sort of no cliff building, right? Which is like, look, if we want to make sure that you don't get stuck, the worst thing ever for anyone building a low code solution or a no code solution is you get 90% of the requirements and you can never fulfill the last 10. And so what are the things we can do so that you can always nail that last 10 without having to rebuild your entire project in code? I think you've done a great job of outlining kind of the, the kind of the logical landscape. Um, but I was, I also felt having looked, having researched software development and developers for many, many years, there was also developer machismo. If you say no code, it's like, so what am I just a PowerPoint jockey? You know, you get them in the bar and it's like, you know, over a beer and it's like, no code. Nope. Don't like it. Gotta be code. But John, you started this at Forrester. Um, I know John Bratton Sevick, who's still there, has has continued this, which is the trend line in that big software survey that they do every year around how many people who identify as professional developers are using something that they call low code. And and we could talk about the nuances and we will over the course of time in the in this in this podcast. But suffice to say that developer machismo is fading away. Professional developers are using low-code tools. You know, they, they might be Microsoft developers who are taking advantage of some of the easy things they can do in, in Power Platform. They might be using it in certain instances, but they are embracing it. They're embracing it in a way that was never true with Lotus Notes, right? Lotus Notes was used to build some very sophisticated applications, but professional developers hated it. They, they thought it was a toy, despite the fact that it was used for, for some pretty sophisticated stuff. It is, I think, unambiguously entering the mainstream now. And that's a big part of what, where this thing podcast ultimately adds value is if it's entering the mainstream, then I need to get away from that mindset of the insurance company that says I've got a little Mindex and I've got a little out systems. And by the way, there was probably some quick base floating around in there somewhere and they might have had some flow former running on some SharePoint. Who knows? And get to the point where you say, this is part of my development portfolio, and I know who uses it, I know when it's used, and I know how it's used, and I have governments associated with that. Is that a fair statement? Is that where, is that where, where are we on the precipice of that? Are we entering that era? Oh, I think, I think there are, we, we, before I retired, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I encountered companies. So I retired in 2020. And 20, uh, 2018, 2019, we, you, you know, you and I were talking to a number of companies who had already made that leap. And they had already put in, they had, Ryan, to your point, they had standardized and they had put in place governance, training, um, reuse strategies, putting, putting in place, uh, you know, uh, libraries of integration components, for example, that could be used. Um, so that, ha- that had already started. I thought that was very interesting because these were, these were enterprise commitments. And to your point, people were building very, very substantial, serious uh, applications, as well as quick turnaround, uh, fast changing kinds of customer facing uh, applications. I think what you're describing is, you know, I don't think, I don't think the books have been written yet about process, about governance. And the big one for me is labor, is skills Mm -hmm. and labor. You know, the person who today uh, is using a spreadsheet to fill a gap in a business process, that person really should be on a low code platform and building an asset that can be managed that including security, data security and, uh, and access. Um, and, and I, I don't think we're there yet. I think I, a lot of, a lot of companies sort of step back from that and say, no, it needs to be some kind of an IT department that, that manages the thing. Whereas it really, it's, it's impact, the, the impact of low code is far, is far broader. I think it affects, I don't know, could affect 75%, 80% of your workforce. So I, I think that vectors us into the, is the business developer a real role, right? Do, does our jobs change? Probably not the old coots on this call, but, you know, for our producer, Jake, as he, as he matures in this industry, is there an expectation that he knows how to develop in a low-code platform? But I think, you know, based on sort of the maturity, I mean, Ryan, you worked at Nintex and you worked at QuickBase. These were aimed at business developers. Um, what's your thought on where we are on the maturity cycle? Yeah, it's interesting. My my sense after being in this space for a long time is that the, the technology has come of age, right? There's there's certainly you, now, of course, everything's going to get changed, right? So every every vendor out there in this space is doing some AI, GPT, chatbot-based thing, right? Um, for better or for worse in some situations. And I do think there's a belief that that's going to make it more accessible to bring more people into the fold. What gets interesting when you dig into to the world of, of low-code and, and the types of people that could achieve an outcome is that it's less about their technical sophistication, less about their skills and abilities. And it's more to do with the incentives, the motivations, the potential for career advancement, all the human aspects of this. Because if you take, and uh, I credit uh, Zoe Cleland and my team back in the day at Nintex for this, if you take uh-huh. a set of people and doing research around the new Nintex design canvas and, and with another push to make it even easier to drag and drop a workflow. and and we show people the experience and they say, this is great. This is easy. This is simple. I understand it. And we found that in general, 
max a couple of days was what it took to get someone super proficient with the platform. And so then you send them back into the workforce and say, okay, so Monday morning is going to come around. You've got a bunch of pain in your business. You've got a bunch of processes that aren't automated, that are inefficient. What are you going to go do? And, and the answer was pretty much nothing, right? Um, you've got access to the licenses. We've given you the skills and the training. We've made it easier than ever before. And in general, the answer was, it's not my job. It's yep. someone else's job. In fact, if I do this, my job could be at risk. And so until I think we get to the point where the structures are in place, like people are celebrated, you, you become a hero. Like, hey, Rob went and low-coded something. High five, Rob. Let's get Rob a special trophy. You know, cubes on, on your wall or something for the number of apps that you trophy. build to gamify it, what have you. Yeah, like I, it, it's hard for me to see that. And equally, back to the Excel thing, Excel's still super simple, right? And, and there are definitely cases, you know, if you take your air tables and your smart sheets and your, your clickups and, and are data centric and are going to put themselves forward as an Excel replacement, which is a great hunting ground to, to go drum up business, right? But Excel's still a lot easier in many cases than those tools because by nature, browser-based applications still have a set of limitations. And so the speed you can jump around cells, move from the top left to the bottom right. You can copy, paste, drag, drop, do all these kind of sophisticated interactions. You still end up a little bit clunkier once you move that into one of these web-based applications. And so you get the, the sharing and the collaboration and the security and governance and control, but you lose the power and the flexibility and the ad hoc reporting and the likes. And so I, I think there's still some things to contend with there. Um, before we can really start to see mainstream adoption of the technology. But I, I would still bring it back to, you know, what's, what are the incentive schemes to make this realistic? I, I almost always agree with you, Ryan, and I agree with almost everything you just said, but but there is a part that I don't agree with. I don't think these things are, are inherently any more difficult than Excel. I think they're less familiar, yep. right? I mean, there was a yep. time when... You're a young buck. When John and I entered the worst force, there were no PCs. There were typing pools, right? People typed for you. People did accounting for you. Complicated product that we've all grew up with and learned how to use. And the question is, is there some change management in place that says this is going to be part of, of, of everybody's work skill set, right? Um, and I think the answer is, is yes. I mean, and I think it comes back to change management is extraordinarily difficult. It's not my job, right? I mean, when I, when I was, when I was doing Lotus Notes applications at, this was at Hewlett Packard in 1995, we had to come up with ways that the executives can interact with the system, which didn't require using a computer. We had phone-based interfaces that we had developed and things like that because they didn't read their own email, right? So, you know, that is no longer the case, right? We don't think about things in those terms anymore. My, my favorite change management story, which, which is not really a good lesson to anybody that's listening, but I just love it anyway. My father-in-law was the chief engineer at Caltrans. He had an early PC, 86-based PC with VisiCalc. He was furious with the central computing system in the state of California, Tito data center. He didn't like that they charged him for computing time. And he wanted his engineers off of that Teal data system. And, and, and they refused to use PCs. So one weekend he came in 
um, with a team and he moved out all of their drafting tables and he moved out all of their desks and he moved out all of their terminals with the exception of one drafting table and one um, terminal to get to Teal and everybody else, everything else had to be done on a new compact based PC. Now, probably not a change management system that's going to work in most places. But that I think is what's going to happen. I think we're I think we're looking at a, at a at a shift that is similar to the shift that we went through with PCs. People are going to have to learn how to code. Companies are going to have to have programs in place that say you need to know Power Apps. You need to be able to use um, you know uh, Power Automate as, as part of your job. Um, and if you don't know how to use it, we'll train you. But do you remember the 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 whim, the what it means, John, that we did in that? Doc, we did way back when we were talking about the, the future impact of AI and low code. Do you remember what the first whim we did was? What, 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 what we projected the future would look like? Remind me. Applicant, it was an it was it was for an entry level marketing position. Applicant must be proficient in blah 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 and our low code tool or a low code tool. Ryan, I I, I really uh, resonated with what you were describing. Um, in particular, the I Rob and I encountered that resistance you described among business people. Where I don't want to touch this stuff. I'm comfortable with Excel. Nobody's going to yell at me for that. But if I'm yeah. going to be producing an application, I, uh, that's not who I am. That's not what I signed up for. Um, I think we did find exceptions, though, and I think they maybe mm -hmm. maybe uh, provide a model. Um, in marketing and sales teams. So every sales team I ever, I was ever, you know, working with um, had their own applications. Now it started out with PC applications. Remember Goldmine and, you know, every time a new sales leader would come in every two years, they'd, they'd introduce a new sales database and they were using that system, that, that application to track uh, forecasts and territories and, you know, and, and account assignments and all that, all that jazz. Um, then, you know, but then you look at what people do with Salesforce. Um, you know, I mean, they, sales departments basically run that thing and they run that that application and they they will um, oftentimes have one or more people whose job it is to build little business processes because things change all the time. Mm -hmm. Compensation plans change all the time. Territories change. We introduce, the company introduces new products. You can't go back to the IT group that's managing the accounting database and everything, all the core systems and expect to get prompt service out of them. And the same with marketing, all the web, all the website teams that exist. So that may be a model in that, in that it's, it doesn't become so much dependent on individuals um, as departments who assign individuals. And there's a span of control within that department. That's I think what that's what I think is missing. It's just this: we need to have some governance, as you say, Rob. How do we actually implement that? Do we implement it globally? Man, that's hard. Uh, do we implement it department by department and maybe derive some kind of global structures out of that? That sounds more reasonable. But Gale is your friend, time. right? If you're govern, if you're talking about governance, if you're talking about security, if you're talking about data access, if you're talking about privacy, if you're talking about applications and lifecycle, scale is your friend, right? But it does bring up a question, right? There's like when we when we checked out, John, um, 
we were tracking 116 low code and digital process automation vendors, right? I can't have 116 in my portfolio, but but maybe more to the point, I'm if I'm making a large purchasing decision, if I if I'm looking, you know, at this from an from an architecture and governance perspective, I'm probably not comparing QuickBase and out systems. They're different critters, right? Which is to your point, which I, earlier when I kind of pushed back, Ryan, you said we're going to get to one. I don't think you're going to get to one, but yeah. Do you have different tools? I mean, Microsoft, you know, Charles will tell us no. Stephen will tell us no. You don't need to, you don't need different tools for low code and pro code. You don't need different tool for business and professional developers. We can serve all needs. Is is that a pipe dream? So we have to get them on and ask them if that's really what they'd say. Charles, <laughs> oh, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. I think that we're, I mean, out systems in particular. Uh, as is, I think, is an example of a company that just their ambitions know no limits. Uh, the feature sets have mm -hmm. to catch up to that, um, but they're pretty aggressive. Mendix started off as a as a little web, you know, web page development tool is quite a lot more than that now. Um, I so I I think some of them do have very broad ambitions, you know, and and they they can actually deliver on them. So, John, you're talking about an ecosystem play. If it's becoming mm -hmm. and that and that's part of a market that's maturing, right? Ecosystems coalesce around mm -hmm. around the dominant vendors. If it's becoming an ecosystem the play, then I would argue it's good to be Microsoft, ServiceNow, maybe Salesforce, right? Salesforce. I mean, if the if the if the the interesting thing, Rob, is that the early the early early ecosystems there, and it's huge, right? And and it's because a lot of this work, if you think about the typical problem within a, a large organization that, that's led to the rise of low code technologies, we don't have enough developers. There's too much demand from the business for applications. What are we going to do, right? Now, so you say, okay, let's introduce low code to this environment. I still have the same number of developers. I still have the same backlog of projects. The backlog of projects that require code, maybe some require could be done with low code, debatable, right? Yeah. But I'm still at 100% capacity. So what happens in a lot of low code scenarios is it's, it's a partner that you bring in, a system integrator, whether they're a boutique shop locally or it's all the way up to Capgemini, Accenture, Avenard, or the likes. And so the ecosystem is already massive. Like the to to put it in context, and this goes back without absolute numbers, but go go back to like late. Uh, probably 2010 type era, the the ecosystem around SharePoint, which I would consider in itself to be a low codish thing, yep, right? That yep. you could build apps on, lists, <laughs> yep. libraries, web parts, and what have you. Yep. The the ecosystem alone was generating six times the revenue that Microsoft was generating from SharePoint. It was massive. Microsoft so a was lot of delighted that with making that money. Right. But a lot of that was, there was ISV plays in there. That's, that's where Nintex was born out of players like Avpoint, Metalogix and the likes that, that we grew up in that world. And so the, the ecosystem's ripe for it. And what you found in that space was this, the reason this, all this technology is super interesting to services companies is because it allows them to take a lower cost, lower skilled resource, build them out at the same rate as a professional developer, likely deliver value faster and reduce risk on the project. Because when there's not code or less code, there's there's less risk. 
less challenges, less bugginess, right? And the process could be a lot different. So rather than sit in requirement meetings for days and days, if not weeks, and of course, in the in the old days with coding and all that, the requirements were always ridiculously over bloated and, you know, oh, this is the only time I'm ever going to get a chance. So I'm going to throw everything I can possibly think of into these requirements. Um, and then you go away for a year and you come back and you show the client and they say, that isn't even close. You're doing it. You're delivering incrementally, right? You can start, you can start small and you can show, we, we saw the, we saw the uh, the services firms adapting their uh, their their processes in that way because they can deliver something that's m much more quickly and is much better suited to the actual need. I think John, you, you talk about delivering the first the first piece of software, right? You just you deliver the big bang piece of software. The the other thing that's worth noting is that IT team is strapped. So if the IT team built it, they've moved on to something else, probably. Most of them. If you've brought in an SI to build it, they've gone off to other clients. But one of the things that's fundamentally different with low code is the maintainability and the extensibility of it, right? Requirements are constantly exactly. happening. And when you can introduce them iteratively and rapidly, we have a process that is allowed to continually improve because it's not inhibited by the software. That was, a, that was a crucial... That was a crucial thing. In fact, looking, you know, thinking back to the origin, the origin story of low code, when, when Clay and I were doing this research and talking to people who were using these products, they were all doing customer facing applications. Uh, well, the vast majority of them were doing customer facing applications. And, and A, the requirements were really squishy um, because they were getting, they were, they were, they, they were learning about what would motivate customers and what would actually be helpful to customers, uh, these, these people who are building these systems. And they were getting feedback and incorporating it in real time. And then they would build, they would build a single module, uh, maybe customer onboarding or something like that, and then go on to something else. That customer onboarding uh, application would change, would, you know, was, was changing. Um, there, there were, we found that there was, and Ryan, I'm sure you saw this as well. There were, Certain applications in certain domains were subject to just radical change, um, you know, whereas you don't want radical change in your accounting systems uh, until the accounting board changes the rules. But, right. uh, you know, even even there, I mean, there, even there, there was there was some change. And to, Rob, to your point, um, if you can make those changes, if the business people themselves or the departments themselves can roll those changes out, you're just at a huge advantage uh, in your marketplace. Yep. So guys, we're at 44 minutes. And I know that when we all get together, it normally goes a lot longer than this, but I think most of our listeners have probably fallen asleep. Um, I would love to continue this conversation. I know at the moment we have, we have obligations. Ryan has to jump on a plane to Istanbul. John has to head to the ski slopes, I'm guessing. I'm, <laughs> um this has been amazing it's been so great to catch up with you i mean it, it's you know again for the audience this is something that we we do quite often we just thought there was value in recording it because we think that there is unmet opportunity in the marketplace today so um thank you john for joining us 
Brian and I Thank will continue you. on with this. John, will you join us again at some point if we ask? I'd love to. <laughs> I think, Rob, the, the big thing, you know, the product manager in me can't help but ending saying, hey, really need to understand our audience, our market, <laughs> need to understand what it is that they want, their hopes, their dreams, their desires. So what we have is a, a, a large network of people people in customer land who are building solutions, people in vendor land who are creating the platforms that everybody knows, loves, or not potentially, um, access to the analyst community through Forrester, Gartner, and uh, IDC, and what have you. Love to know who the audience wants to hear from, kind of topics people want to discuss. Mm -hmm. Where are people challenged? You know, do you want to know what's coming up next from the vendors? Are you trying to pick which vendors to consolidate on? Is it centers of excellence, best practices for deployment? Is it figuring out what kinds of apps fit what kinds of platforms? Uh, all feedback's welcome. Uh, just you know, reach out. You can find us on LinkedIn. Analysis. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, and analysis.tech is now live. So the domain name where we'll be hosting this is analysis.tech. No.com, just analysis.tech. There's a feedback form there as well. Um, but of course, you know, probably probably LinkedIn is where you'll yell at us the most. All right. Fantastic. Thank you all. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. Be well. Mm -hmm.